You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, Sean, how's it going? David, it's going great. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. You know, this this week's been terrible. I went to the uh, I went to the zoo, and they were having a run for the zoo. So there's a marathon being run around the zoo. And so we spent like an hour in detours trying to figure out how to get to the zoo. They kept turning us, you know, routing us around all the marathon runners. We finally went all the way around the city to the other side of the zoo just to find out that only marathon runners are allowed to go in the zoo on the, the zoo run day. So we went to the botanical garden instead. But that was my that was my weekend. Was August upset or? No, he liked the botanical garden fine. He got the run around. And yeah, they have a nice little center park where you can run. Gotcha. And this is uh, not this is Albuquerque, right? Not Santa Fe? Yep, Albuquerque. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that sounds amazing. I uh, I saw the Northmen on Sunday. Yeah. And uh, as like an expert, and I'm putting expert in huge quotes because I don't actually claim to be an expert. I went into this like saying, oh, I'm going to be cautiously optimistic. It's, you know, it's going to be fine, but I'm going to nitpick everything. And it ended up being a pretty good movie. Like I'd probably give it like eight out of 10. It was, uh, there was a good balance between like, I guess if you, if you looked at like one side of the movie as, oh, it's just a bunch of like shirtless Vikings fighting and, you know, attacking the shield wall and like saying for Odin. And then like the other version, which is probably more historically accurate where they're all farmers. It was a good balance between that. Yeah. It was also a good mix of like the actual, um, you know, sagas, but also that Eggers touch of, oh, I wonder if there is something supernatural going on. There probably is, but there's this, this also could be in the main character's mind type of thing. That's what I was going to ask if they got into anything like magic or the gods or anything of that nature. Yeah, they, they did a good job. And I, I haven't read all the uh, the sagas yet, but it was definitely based on a lot of the Icelandic sagas. And I think the saga that it was primarily based on was actually from uh, Saxo Grammaticus's History of the Danes. Yeah. But you can tell that there was like a, you know, it, it kind of, it did a good job of like coming off as, you know, 13th century Scandinavia stories, which was very similar to like the Arthurian legends, if that makes sense. You know, do they have any of the like uh, Norse mythology kind of expert guys as their like their expert for the movie to a uh, consultant? Yeah. They had a lot of them and a lot of like better podcasts than ours had those, those experts on to speak on their podcast, but not us, but you know, maybe one day we will. Okay. Yeah. No, so I'm, I'm curious if uh, you have to know who who was yeah, who were their was... consultants. We should be reading those guys for them. <laughs> yeah. Saga thing actually had the director, Robert Akers, on recently. Uh, like Gone Medieval had um, uh, Neil Price, who came out with a book oh, yeah. uh, last year, like The Children of Ashton Elm. It's, it was like there was a huge cast of like actual experts that helped on the movie. There was a lot of cheesy parts, but I, I'd, I'd recommend our listeners to watch it. I definitely don't want to give any spoilers away, but I definitely would recommend going to see it if you haven't already. And Sean, what you drinking this week? It's another week where I did not get a beer. So it's another week where I had my version of the Vesper Martini, which is three parts gin, two parts vodka, and one part Saint Germain. We're going we're to need to get some uh, brewery to sponsor us so they can uh, give you some beer. So you got to get a beer each week. Yeah, I'll just like pack up like, you know, four options, like four options consistently. So any week I forget to get beer or I don't have time to go to the store to get beer because I'm bogged down with work, you know, well, backups. Well, I'll let you, I'll let you do our introduction for what we're talking about this week. It's a grimness mall. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into it. So this week we're going to be discussing the first episode of a poem called Grimness Mall, which is found in the Poetic Edda. We have quoted this poem multiple times, I, like I would imagine probably like eight or 10 times um, so far since we started the podcast, because like Voluspa, Vathruthnismal, and somewhat like in Habamal, the poem functions as a great source of world building in the Norse myth universe. So in this case, in Grimnismal, the speaker himself is Odin, 
Um, the poem contains a somewhat lengthy prose introduction. Then the stanzas of the poem itself are Odin's words about the universe, with the listener being a Prince Agnar and his father Gareth, who is the king of the Goths. So this poem is up there as one of my personal favorites of the Poetic Edda, as it features Odin and his wife Frigg getting involved in the affairs of mortals for sport, which is something we don't really see a lot within the Poetic Edda and the Prose Edda. Um, but it also allows us, as I mentioned, to world build the universe a little bit. And it, evol- it involves an end where Odin reveals himself and who he is in a pretty badass set of stanzas. Like yeah, I say, that's a thing that uh, in Greek mythology that uh, Zeus and Hera are always up to. They're the king and the queen of the, the Greek uh, pantheon of gods. They're mm-hmm. always getting interfering with the mortals and picking sides and things like that and having their little battles. This is a nice one because it has that like... There's all this, is there a word for that where they're just kind of spouting lore? Like he's just sort of explaining the universe and giving you, you know, fact after fact. Is there a word for that? I mean, I, I personally like to say it's world building. And you see yeah. this in uh, Volspa, like Odin awakes the Cirrus to learn about his future. And and she right. wakes up, like she's she wakes, awakes from the dead. She talks about the future, the past, and you're able to like see the world through what she says. Yeah. In Vathruth and the Small, there's like a contest between Odin and the r- giant Riddle Weaver where they have a contest where they ask each other questions and Odin and Riddleweaver answer them correctly and you're allowed to learn more about the world then. Um, Havamal Odin talks about the world in his own eyes. And then one that I did not mention was the one that we discussed with Thor in The Dwarf two weeks ago. So Alvismal, where Thor asks Alvis you know, many questions. And, and for Thor, it was like a delay tactic, but Alvis gives his like lore on the world as well. Right. That's what and you're able Havamal, to... Yeah. Havamal didn't have much context for why... Odin was going through all the Havamal kind of uh, lines. It was just sort of Odin is speaking and everyone listens. Was that right for Havamal? Yeah. And then for like the third, the third part of it, I know we, we did three episodes and excuse me, we did three episodes on it. I feel like in part two and three, you start to see Odin talk about his own experiences. Yeah. Telling about yeah. a thing that happened to him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's, that's why I said it's like somewhat like in Havamal, but Odin is speaking and he's kind of like given his interpretation of the world and how like one needs to act. Which, as us being the listener, I know in the poem it's um it's uh, Ladfafnir, who's a listener. But like us reading the Havamal, we're supposed to like it gives us a better understanding of what you know these Scandinavians who may have read these stories fifteen hundred years ago actually believed. I really like the context they use to set up all of the. I call it lore spouting. Where you say the universe building, right? He's just <laughs> yeah. spouting lore. He's telling you. He's studying cosmic lore. So that's where we kind of, I mean, it's worth explaining. We kind of break this one up, right? So we have this, this introduction. It's kind of a very long, it's, it's not that long, but it's a long prose introduction to the poem. Then there's uh, 50 stanzas about, right? So we split those up and we're going to have two episodes, the first half of the poem and then ending it. Yeah. yeah I, when we first went through this, and I think there's like 65 stanzas. Um, I don't have the book in front of me, but I believe there's about 65 stanzas and we were going to split this up like 32 and 32 stanzas a piece. But then we realized the prose was, you know, a story in itself. In fact, the prose is the primary part of the story. So we're going to go over the prose introduction section and then maybe like the first, uh, you know, couple dozen or maybe the first dozen stanzas. And next week, we're going to go ahead and finish that. Sounds good. Uh, Let's yeah. start the, the introduction to the... Awesome. So as I said, Grimness Mall, the poem is from the Poetic Edda. And then the first half of it is the prose introduction. So we'll go ahead and get started with that. King Hrothung has two sons, Agnar, who is aged 10, and Gareth, who is aged 8. Or the name Gareth pops up in last week's episode, where Thor travels to Gareth's court. Uh, Gareth is a giant in that, in that uh, story, but in this, in this poem, he is a, a human. So Agnar's 10, Gareth is 8. 
they become lost at sea one day while on a fishing trip. They landed at a, at a farm where the farmer, who is Odin in disguise, ends up fostering Gareth, and the farmer's wife, who is Frigg in disguise, fosters Agnar. So the boys did not know their identities, and again, Frigg is Odin's wife. So early in the spring, after what we can imagine are a few months of the boys living with Odin and Frigg, Odin and Frigg give the boys a boat for the trek home. Odin meets with Gareth prior to them leaving in secret. When they ultimately arrived home on the boat, Gareth got off the boat first and then pushed it back into the sea with Agnar still on it and said, go wherever the trolls take you. So Gareth goes back to his father's kingdom to find out that his father actually has died and Gareth becomes king as a result. And that's one we'll, and, we'll come back yeah, to again, yeah, that they don't really explain why he just kind of pushes the boat back in the water and his brother floats off, right? Could his brother not make it back to shore if he wanted to? Or his <laughs> brother is just like, my brother hates me, so I guess I'm not going to go home with him? Or I'm loyal to my brother, so I'm going to go follow the trolls. Right. You just have to sort of uh, interpret why that happens. But yeah, that's, we'll come back to that, I think. Yeah. yeah. And it also could just be the fact that it seems like the Norse gods, specifically Thor, and maybe the, the humans on Midgard and these Norse sagas just don't know how to swim. And they're very bad with water, based on what we've read in many episodes. And one thing that I, I just made a note of here, because I'm also into like Dark Age history and one portion of history, when you look at like all the petty kingdoms or kingdoms and you see like when one king dies, who becomes the next king, it makes me, you know, think very strongly about succession and how succession works. Like what are the succession laws? I guess the best, uh, if you, if you look at succession in the way it is with like the current English monarch, Queen Elizabeth II, it's called primogeniture, which typically means the eldest child inherits back in the day. It was male preference primogeniture to the point where a woman could only assume the throne if a if there was no son of the king and there was only a daughter. And by by back in the day, I mean actually the year 2010, because <laughs> they they just changed it like in the last uh, 12 years. But if you look at Dark Age Scandinavia, you really don't understand how succession works that much. You might assume that the strongest man or woman inherits the kingdom, or the strongest family member inherits the kingdom. But in this case, you have an eight-year-old boy who's arriving back at his father's kingdom. Even though his father has died, they were waiting for him and they made him king. Yeah, and, it, and it should have been Agnar, the 10-year-old, right? But because he, he floated off in the boat, now it's Gareth, the uh, eight-year-old. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so this is very interesting because when, um, I guess, Hrothung died, I wonder if he told his best advisors or his most trusted advisors, when my sons get back, they are going to be, they're going to replace me. They're going to uh, be my successor. Or if it may have been a situation where, you know, somebody else could have played the Game of Thrones and just said, well, no, the boys are not here. The king's dead. I'm going to be king. Anyway, that's just for me playing too too much Crusader Kings too. No, that's that's interesting because that Odin is, like you were saying, that Game of Thrones where there's somebody was there realizing the king's dead and we have no replacement and Odin's scheming on things, right? So that's, that's something. I didn't think of that. Yeah. So anyway, Gareth is now king. So Odin and Frigg one day are sitting in Hlid's Skjaf to look over the worlds. Odin boasts about how his foster child was the king, while Frigg's foster child is with a troll woman in a cave. So Frigg states that Gareth is a bad ruler who is so stingy he starves his guests of food. This is where I, I you, you realize that Agnar may have followed his brother's advice. He actually was living with a troll woman in a cave. Or maybe Gareth's words worked as like some 
some type of curse and Agnar eventually was captured by a troll who took him back to her cave. Yeah, I didn't think about that at all, that it could be a curse, right? But that yeah, Odin gave Gareth some kind of power of words that then mm-hmm. makes his brother go off. Because I'm just thinking, I'm like, I guess his boat just floated away and he couldn't get back <laughs> to shore. And he's, he's like one kid by himself, so he couldn't row. I like the curse idea. That yeah, makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, and we see like in all the stories, right, that like not only written words, but verbal words have power. You'll see it like with Odin in the meat of poetry or Odin in the runes. And I, I just kind of like in my head canon, that is almost the case. When Odin pulled Gareth aside, he said, oh, just uh, say this, say this to him. And then he's not going to be able to come back and a troll woman is going to capture him. And also Hildsklaf, excuse me, Hildsklaf, excuse I'm very bad at that. Hildsklaf. Hildsklaf. Yeah, I guess so. But that's the high seat of Odin. It allows him to see all over the worlds. So that's where him and Frigg were when they were looking down on this kingdom of these two human lives that they that they uh, interfered in. Also, I wanted to make a note here. There's another poem called Skernismal, where the Vanir god Frey uses the throne, I'm not even going to try to say it right now, to look over the worlds and eventually falls in love with a giantess he sees in Jotunheim. And that's going to be a poem that we discuss for another day. But I think that's very interesting that he also mentioned the, the chair. They also use the chair in that poem. So anyway... Odin and Frigg then make a wager. Odin plans to go to the kingdom to disprove Frigg's claim that his foster child Gareth is a stingy person. So Frigg eventually sends her servant, Fulla, to King Gareth to warn him that a stranger would be approaching that he cannot trust. And Gareth would know who that stranger is when the dogs do not bark at him. So Gareth had his men arrest any visitor who arrived that his dogs wouldn't bark at. And this visitor ultimately ends up being Odin. He arrives as a man uh, named Grimnir, which is bit what the poem's name is based on, which also translates to shadowed face. And he's in a blue cape. He was silent and answered no questions from Gareth. And because the dogs obviously did not bark, Gareth arrests Grimnir, or Odin, and had him placed between two burning fires where he sat for eight nights. And I made a joke here, uh, more like between two fires as opposed to between two ravens, but we can also take that out of the episode. Nope, I like it. We're keeping it. (laughs) Okay, great. Gareth's son, Agnar, who's named after his brother. Gareth has a son that is named after Gareth's brother. Agnar Agnar is named after his uncle, Agnar. That's that's what I was putting. Agnar felt pity on Grimnir and gave him a full horn to drink from as his father was behaving poorly. Grimnir drinks, and then the poem starts. And this is where Odin, you know, is able to like get strength from the drink, it seems. And then he starts spouting, uh, you know, the lore that actually takes place in the stanzas. So that there's the prose introduction, David. One of the things I was reading was how that it's actually that first section they say is probably something that was added later. That the poem, the stanzas we'll see in a little bit, are maybe an older part, right? Mm-hmm. And then somebody wrote the kind of beginning and the ending to sort of uh, like sandwich the story in there. And that makes sense because like the poem itself, like the stanzas with no context of what Odin is doing, it's like, oh, here's a poem and Odin is speaking. Right. And he's um, telling and, facts about the world and the universe. Yeah, exactly. And you, you just imagine like somebody gets this poem it's like, well, this needs to be improved. I'm going to make some fan fiction based on that. Put it together in one manuscript. And like, luckily we found this, this copy, if that makes sense. Oh yeah. And that's uh, but I, I like this introduction a lot, right? Even, I don't know if we know roughly what, like, you know, what century it was written, right? But it reminds me a lot of the story of a little bit like Cain and Abel, but also the later part yeah. in the Bible of Esau and Jacob. Are you familiar with that story from 
it's from Genesis 25. <laughs> I, I should be. I think Jacob is like uh, Isaac's or like yeah. Abraham's son or something. Both, both Esau and uh, Jacob are the sons of Isaac. So Abraham okay, was like, cool. Abraham's kind of the original guy, right? He's told to, I think he's told to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, right? But then he doesn't, because God right. says, oh no, just kidding. You don't have to. But then, <laughs> but then Isaac has two twin sons. So it's Esau and Jacob. And similar to this story, the myth we're talking about, that Esau, Esau is the one who was born first. So he's kind of the one who's supposed to be the, le- the legitimate heir, right? What's interesting is that he's sort of this like Thor-like character. He's the big burly, he's, he's born big and hairy, and um, he's a good hunter and his, his father loves him because he's such a good hunter. And they say that J- Jacob dwelled in the tents, which some things I've read say that that's supposed to mean he stayed home with the women while his brother mm-hmm. was out hunting. But there's this, the story is, it's kind of funny. It's a, it's a, it's a very weird story because, and, and again, reminds me of Thor because Esau comes home one day from hunting and he's telling his brother, like, I'm dying of hunger, brother, make me some soup. And he's like, no, I won't give you the soup unless you give me your birthright. And you say that I'm the legitimate heir. And he's like, fine, fine, whatever, I'm hungry, right? <laughs> but back in this time, your word is your bond, right? So when he agrees yeah. to do that, right, he actually gives that up and exchanges that with his brother, right? And then later on, Isaac is an old man and kind of on his deathbed, Jacob's mother suggests that he disguise himself as his brother to get his father's blessing. So he puts these, uh, he puts um, sheepskin on his arms. So he has hairy arms like his brother and he wears his brother's cloak. So he smells, his father knows him by the smell and he's like, oh, you smell nice and nice and musty like my, uh, my son who's the hunter. <laughs> and uh, you smell like shit. You must be my son, Esau. Right. Yeah. You, you smell like a, you know, a manly sweat basically. And uh, you're not, not, not that Jacob who smells like something else, I guess. I don't know. So he, he deceives his blind father to get the blessing that, you know, basically as his father's going to die that he gets to inherit everything and if he gets to, and then um, Esau shows up and he's like, father, tell me, isn't there some blessing left for me? Right. Realizing he's been tricked, but his word is, you know, his word, he can't go back on it. I was reading back through it because I'm like this, it's kind of an odd story that this deception and things are rewarded, but essentially it is that Rebecca, uh, Isaac's wife had a prophecy from God that the younger son should be the ruler. So she knew God had told her that's what's supposed to happen. So that's why she needed to do these deceptions. And even so, Esau wants to kill Jacob afterwards. So Jacob has to go on the run and it's only eventually he gets to kind of inherit everything. But it kind of reminds me of like with Loki and Thor, right? These two guys that are always like, they're always together and they're very different from each other, right? That Loki's the deceptive one. Thor is the strong one who's hangry. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's odd to me that this sort of you know, parallels this, some stories uh, in the Bible, but it's kind of flipped in some ways, you know, this myth we're on today, right? That Agnar was the eldest, right? He was supposed to be the le- legitimate heir. And he was favored by Frigg, but then it's this father figure who teaches deception, right, of Odin. I was just looking back at that, that quote, the way it's worded is, it says, go where the evil one may take you. And the ship was driven out. So that's the way they, they say it, right? They don't really give you exactly what the curse is, but he says, go where the evil one may take you, basically. I rewatched uh, Jackson Crawford's video on this. Oh, yeah. um, in his book, in his translation of the Poetic Edda, he mentions like his, his translation is go where the trolls may take you. Yeah. But in the actual video on YouTube, he talks about how the word that was actually used was just like, go where the uh, like evil woman, the sinister woman will take you yeah. or something like that. And I think just to make things easier, he put the word troll in. 
I could be wrong, but I think that's right. what, what happened. But I think that's really useful to know what's the literal one, the literal meaning, right? So that he, yeah, he's with some woman, right? Is it some woman he fell in love with, or it's one of these, maybe something like it's the Seductresses, yeah. Enchantresses, right? Yeah, something like that. And then also that's, you know, going back to me trying to look at the symbols, right? The idea that, you know, what, is, what are the depths of the sea is kind of like the unconsciousness, right? So Agnar is sent back out into not being conscious, not being aware. And that's a little bit like Esau, not, not carefully thinking through what it means when he impulsive and his decision-making and things like that. A couple other things that stood out to me. One is like, so that Frigg, we talked about those archetypes, right? The, the king, the um, warrior, the magician, the lover. It's the same ones yeah. for women as well. It's just rather than the king, it's the queen, but it's still the queen, the warrior, the magician, the lover. The magician might be something like a sorceress, or I'm not sure the, the wording they would use, but, and so that, but that Frigg really is the queen, right? She's actually a good queen where Odin isn't really, right? Odin might be more of like a, uh, a shadow magician or something like that, right? But Frigg is, is good to her word, right? She's uh, tries to teach good values to the boy that she's raising, that keeping your word idea, right? I also noticed that part when, when Frigg sends a woman to warn the king, she's sort of being a little deceptive, but she's not actually lying, right? She's saying there's a guy coming and he's not trustworthy, right? And that's her husband. Odin, she doesn't but, say it's Odin. Yeah. Yeah. But she says it's a man who's not trustworthy, which is just completely true. Right. So I'm like, yeah, she's warning him ahead of time. She, she's a little deceptive, but she doesn't actually lie. Yeah. And it's funny because like, if you think about this, like if Frigg is like smarter than Odin or something like yeah. that, she could have like said, just go warn him and say Odin's coming. And then Gareth would have been like, oh, I'm not going to do anything to Odin. Odin, welcome to my hall. Right. And I feel like if Odin arrives and he gets arrested, he's probably like, well done wife. Yeah. You, you got me. Yep. So I'm just like, imagine there's like some like little game they have in there where Odin like allows himself to be pretty much arrested and tortured for eight days because he knows that Frigg got one on him, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. And like, if he re reveals himself, he doesn't win the, the bet, right? If it's kind of just like a game between the two of them. It also kind of stuck with me this idea because Od Odin actually spent some time kind of raising this boy who ends up being the boy who tortures him, right? So I'm thinking like that Odin really wants to see him like redeem himself, right? It's not just to win the game, but he wants to see that the the child he was mentoring, that he's that he's not a bad father, basically, right? That's kind of my yeah. thought that that's part of what uh, Odin is having to uh, admit as he finally realizes his son's just going to keep torturing him. And that's another one that's interesting, that image of him between two fires. Uh, there was actually a thing in Carolyn Larrington's translation where she talked about how maybe that is some kind of an image related to shamanism, sort of like with with sweat lodges that people kind of, they sweat it out. And it's kind of like with fasting, it'll get you into an altered state of consciousness. So maybe there's something like that, but it's, you know, from the story, it's not obviously that. An image and that's that might... very consistent with Odin, right? I mean, he, you see him like hang himself for nine days and nine nights, right. and he obviously can't eat because he's being hung for that long. And then like at the end of it, he has like this trance or he like comes out or mentally superior. Right. And in this case, if he doesn't eat for eight, eight nights, then that's him possibly like gaining some wisdom as well. Like, I feel like this, this poem could have gone with our series of episodes on Odin. Right. I know Grimness Mall has like a lot of information that could be considered spoilers, but I wanted to, you know, kind of say like, eh, maybe this is like more so in Odin's lust for knowledge. He wants to learn about humans. He wants to learn about human nature. So like, I don't know, it's, it's very interesting to think about like what Odin's motivations are in a lot of these, these stories, including this poem. So let's go ahead and, uh, move over to the poem portion of the, the story. Uh, David, did you want to take it away? Yeah, I wanted to read stanza one and two. So this is how the poetic part starts after uh, gets the, uh, the drink from the, from the child, right? The, uh, awesome. Little Agnar, was that, did I get his name right? <laughs> yes, Agnar. Little Agnar gave him the drink. And then Odin says, 
Hot you are, hurrying fire, and rather too fierce. Go away from me, flame. My fur cloak singes, though I lift it up. My mantle burns before me. Eight nights I have sat here between the fires, yet no one offered me food, except Agnar alone. And he alone shall rule, the son of Gerud, the land of the Goths. And I think this is cool because this almost makes it seem like Odin was waiting for something. He was waiting for a sign. He, he probably, he, like we already know, he could have gone out, like escaped no matter what. He could have escaped whenever he wanted to, but he was waiting for like some like little source of inspiration. Maybe the fact that Gareth had a son also named Agnar and Odin fostered Gareth. He's like, okay, well, maybe something I did right. I fostered this person that gave birth to a good son. So I'm just remembering back to somewhere like in our first three episodes, like back in season zero, we were talking about that there was yeah this myth where like Odin gets himself caught by humans somehow. And we we're kind of being like, how does, how did that go? Right. What, what had to go wrong for Odin to get captured? Right. But now it makes sense. Right. He, yeah, he's here trying to prove a point. Yeah. So I can, I can move us forward. One thing with the uh, land of the Goths, I just wanted to make a brief comment on what, who the Goths are. So during the decline I guess, of the Roman Empire in, in Europe. So this is probably like the 200s to the, to the 400s. The Roman Empire was declining. There was power struggles all over the place. And then these people called the Goths, who were probably located in lower Scandinavia, maybe like middle to Eastern Europe, they took advantage of the situation. They often fought with the Romans or like had border scuffles with the Romans, but they were definitely there the Goths sort of migrated westward as a result of this power struggle. And there was also this invasion by this other group called the Huns that kind of like came in also from the east. Anyways, the Goths eventually sacked Rome, who I think was the Visigoths or the Ostrogoths, but the Visigoths also like took, took some control of the Iberian Peninsula. So when this poem says King Garrid of the Goths, it's very interesting to me because this actually happened. So if this story was written maybe in like the eight to nine hundreds, you can like put things together and say, well, maybe this poem is based on an actual story that happened a couple hundred years earlier. Like, was there a King Gareth of the yeah. Goths? And somebody decided to write this poem or King Gareth had this like little run in with Odin. But anyway, that's just me geeking out. It's like part of my whole thing about when does like myth become legend and when does legend become reality, if that makes well, sense. And that's when the, the skaldic poets, they went around and tried to like write poems that kings and lords would like. That was kind of their, how they, how they got paid, right? <laughs> to go around and, and come up with a good poem that would please, be pleasing for the lord or the king, right? So that uh, gives you an idea maybe what time frame this came from, I would, I would think. Yeah. So if there was like a bad King Gareth or something, like if there was a King Gareth who is like horrible at his job as a king, like 100, 200 years later, there's going to be like some jester saying, oh, and then King Gareth, he dishonored Odin, and then he was put in his bad graces. Like, it's uh, it's very cool for me to think about. And again, that goes to like what I said earlier about the, the movie The Northmen, where it's based on these like sagas that were written that were very like Arthurian, like Arthurian skin, and like in the Scandinavian sense with Scandinavian characters. But it's like, oh, well, 200 years ago, here were the kings. So let's let's create this character who interacted with these kings or these warlords. And let's like create a cool story about it. And to your point, I think that that might be exactly what this is and how King Gareth was the king of the Goths, if that makes sense. And then... As we go through the poem, you can, we'll put in the show notes a link where you can read the poem because we'll just kind of go through and describe some of the things you know that stand out to us. I'll read a couple that I really like. Yeah, Sean, yeah. go ahead with stanza four. Yeah, this is where like Odin starts spreading his lore. He he escapes from the fire, or he like has this like realization, or he goes to this trance after Agnar gives him this drink, yep. and he says like 
nobody is going to be, uh, he says that nobody's going to be given a gift as much as Agnar is for this one simple, simple drink. As a result, Odin decides to kind of use this opportunity to explain who he is to give such a gift. And he starts explaining this cosmic knowledge. And then by the end of the poem, he, he like reveals who he is. But anyway, this part like stands four is where he like starts this cosmic knowledge and he starts going over like different halls of the gods, like what the the gods halls name are names are in sense of four. He talks about Thrudheim being Thor's kingdom. And he mentions that it's near those of gods and elves. So he's given us a bit of the, the geography, which is very hard to actually define it, but it gives you a sense. And then I liked, I like this one here. So here's kind of the way some of these read stanza five, you Dale, it is called the place where Ol has made a hall for himself. Alfheim, the gods gave to Frey in bygone days as tooth payment. So they say that notes in the book were saying that uh, tooth payment is for your tooth day. When you get your first tooth, or, I was thinking it was when you lose your first tooth, but they say it's when you get your mm-hmm. first tooth, a uh, child gets a gift, right? So when Freyr was a baby, he was given Alfheim. It's kind of an interesting thing because he came from Vanaheim with, uh, yeah. right, with his father and with Freya. And so it's kind of like, oh, maybe he was a little boy, right? Maybe he's much younger than Freya, actually. They never really specify. Um, what, and it's very cool to think about because, like, I know we discussed this when we discussed uh, the Nine Worlds, like, before we, <laughs> like, in our season zero yeah. for this podcast. And we're like, well, why was uh, this person or Freya from Vanaheim given Alfheim, the land of the elves? And I know we see in, like, different um, episodes, and we're going to see, like, in Locusena, like, elves maybe looked at as, these very divine beings, but they're not as good as the gods. And so if like you see the Vanir in the Aesir meeting and then like eventually having this battle, but then making peace and like having this exchange of hostages and like, you see like what started the war, Odin was like captivated by Freya and then Frey comes over as well. Freya's brother, you might say, oh, well, Frey is going to be given the land of the elves why not? That's going to be part of our hostage. Uh, that's going to be hard, a part of our negotiation. You're going to be able to rule these, these beings called the elves. It really fits with these different ideas of archetypes because there's, there's several different ways they'll label the different archetypes, right? I've, I've said the one I say frequently is the, uh, the king, warrior, magician, lover. But there's a similar one where rather than saying the lover and the king, they say the son and the father, right? That's sort of like we said, you know, father, son, holy spirit. And then is mm-hmm. it a, a trinity or could there be a fourth one and coming up with that kind of system? For Freyr to be the lover, as we get into more, we'll learn about more about Freyr. He's also then kind of like the son or the divine child, right? Which is Christ, who's kind of all good. And then Freyr gets Alfheim, right? So he's kind of the god that's more like that. So stanza six, there's a place called Valaskaf, where it's referred to as the place Odin made himself in the old days. Stanza seven, Sakvabek, which cool waves crash upon. There, Odin and Saga drink heavily, excuse me, drink happily every day from golden cups. And I'm also going to imagine they drink heavily. I looked into this. There's like some theories that Saga may be Frigg. Yeah, because nowhere else it really describes who a a goddess named Saga uh, would be, right? I think there's like one mention of her in the the Proceta. Again, this being in the Poetic Edda, but there's like one mention in the Proceta, but there's like a lot of similarities with her home as well as Frigg's home. And a lot of people think that, oh, Saga must be Frigg, unless like Saga is like a childhood lover of Odin, since Odin like created this 
or like was there in the old days, if that makes sense. That's, but that's why I like that uh, Carolyn Larrington, she agreed with what was my kind of instinct I get from all this reading that it's just another name for Frigg, right? Because we've talked before, right? Thor has so many different names, right? And as we went through previously, there's these goddesses that Snorri takes them to be the 12 different goddesses, but nothing is known about them except like one word, right? Like there's prudence and wisdom mm -hmm. and kindness, and there's just a goddess named kindness, right? But maybe it's actually just a na another name for Frigg, right? Or something yeah, like that. But... I was trying to dive into this a little to see, is there a, a goddess saga anywhere else? As I was trying to find out, they, they've just said mostly the word saga probably just comes from the root of the word to say, right? So when we use that in English, you know, a saga says a bunch of things about kind of history. And often sagas are the story of a family, right? So that mm -hmm. Frigg is the protectress of a family. Maybe that's why she's saga. It's a little bit of a stretch there, but that's the best I can find. And then the weirdest one was that saga in the Proto-Kushtish language means cow. And so this is the thing to know, know, know all your mythologies that in uh, Greek, Frigg's equivalent is Hera, the wife of Zeus. She's known as cow-eyed Hera because she has such big, beautiful eyes. They call her cow-eyed Hera. Maybe that's why Frigg is saga. Who knows? <laughs> or we just figured out where Athumla went. Athumla yeah. became saga. That that Athumla is is Saga. Athumla is Frigg. Also, they're all the, they're all the same. When and then Frigg is Freya. So think about it. When you think about it, right? When you look at it and you squint. Yeah. So. Awesome. Anyways, onto stanza eight. Thanks, David. Uh, so stanza eight, Gladsheim is where Valhalla stands. This is where Odin chooses from men killed by weapons. Moving on to stanzas nine and ten, Valhalla is easily recognized if one comes to see it. The hall is held up by spear shafts. It is roofed by shields, and chainmail is on its benches. A wolf hangs above the western door, and an eagle above him. So, David, that's the description of Valhalla in Grimnismal. Yeah. I just, I just love that image, right? That yeah, that's like you know, uh, think about how Viking bros would design their uh, man cave, and it's just spears and shields everywhere. There's, you don't need anything else. The you know, the couch cushions are made out of chainmail, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Moving on to Sands 11. Thiasi, the mighty giant, once lived in a sixth hall, now known as Thrymheim, and now Skadi, bright bride of the gods, lives in her father's old home. I was wondering if that's, so that's, that is a, another way to say Skaldi, right? The, yeah, it is. The wife of um, Nord, Nord's wife, right? I was wondering who uh, Thiazi is. Is that Thiazi from Thrymskvita? If they're talking about his hall there. Yeah. I, I don't believe so. I think Thiazi was actually involved in another story that we have not gotten to yet. Okay. Because I thought there was a Thiazi back. There was a Thiazi mentioned the in Harbredzalad. I was wondering if somehow this could be the same person because we talked about that he's in Thrymheim, which reminds me of Thrym from Thrymskvita. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if some of these, they might just use the names interchangeably or maybe there's supposed to be some connection. So, yeah. Stanza 12, Baldur's Hall is Breithablik. You will find little grief there. Baldur is uh, one of the sons of Odin and Frigg. Uh, so as we have discussed previously, Thor is not the son of Odin and Frigg. He's the son of Odin and the Earth. Baldur is actually the son of Odin and Frigg, and we're going to be discussing him deeply in, a f in future episodes. But he is like the bright star of the gods. Yeah, and because he, he's their um, yeah. legitimate child, right? So of the you know the king and queen, he's their legitimate child, kind of supposed to be the perfect man. That's how I like to think of Baldur. But otherwise, he's not that interesting, right? Except he's he's the perfect man. He's the Agnar, <laughs> and, and I guess Thor could be the Gareth, but we'll see. 
Okay, stanza 13. Hemdal inhabits him and Bjorg. This is where the watchman of the gods drinks his good mead. And it's one of those things that, you know, in some places they really identify him as the watchman of the gods, right? That's who Hemdal is. It makes me really suspect that he's not Rig, right? In Rig's Thula, they're talking about Rig. And some authors say that that's Hemdal, right? But I really mm-hmm. think it sounds like that would be Odin, right? Odin's the guy who goes around and decides who gets to be kings, right? And that's kind of what he's doing in this story. Another one of my theories that Rig's Thula is all about Odin, not uh, Hemdal, yeah. Yeah, I know Rig understands the runes, which it says at the end of the poem. So like maybe it's not Hemdal, but a lot of people just make that assumption that it is. Yeah. So stanza 14. Freya rules in Folkvang, and this is, this gets very interesting, where she arranges the seats and chooses half of those who die in battle. So what, what this is saying is that Valhalla gets one half, and then Folkvang gets the other. So if you die in battle, you don't necessarily go to Valhalla. You might go to Folkvang with Freya. I just keep putting all my notes of, because this gives so much, like this uh, Grimness Mall gives so much great de- detail on all the gods. So I'm kind of just noting for myself the the facts I want to return back to later, like that idea are Freya and Frigg kind of the same, because here it's that Odin and Freya, they each get half, right? They have a very equitable relationship, kind of an equal relationship in that way. Uh, that to me kind of says something. But yeah. yeah, definitely. So stanza 15, Forseti settles disputes in his hall, which is called Glitznir. And Forseti is the son of Boulder and Nana. Which is from the which is what it says in the Prosetta. Yeah, it says that he he settles disputes, right? That's his his thing he's known for, mm-hmm. which is kind of like what Tyr is known for usually, right? That Tyr is like the just you know the just the decider of what's fair and honesty and things like that. And we talked a bit last week about like all the guys who after Ragnarok who are going to kind of inherit and take the place of the the previous set of gods. So I think he would mm-hmm. take on Tyr's place in, in my my mind. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see, David. So stanza 16, Neorth's Hall is Notan. It's a very brief stanza. Stanza 17, Vithars, and Vithar being Odin's other son that we discussed in detail in the previous weeks. Vithar's land is overgrown with high grass and weeds. There the son proclaims from horseback his keenness to avenge his father. And I think I quoted that actual stanza last week. Thor visited Ethar, Vithar's mother in his, on his travels to Gareth's Hall. Vithar is only mentioned primarily in the Proetic Edda as like the Avenger of Odin. And then he has like one like small chapter in uh, the Proetic He doesn't do anything really in any of the actual stories except stand up at a banquet in Locusena. But Vithar is another son of, uh, is another son of Odin. His, uh, his sort of like the image that stands out here to me is that he lives kind of out in the wilds, right? He's not quite like settled down. So he's sort of mm-hmm. that like, the young man who's still out adventuring, but he's not uh, bothering with like, you know, ruling and government and things like that, right? He's he's not uh, trying to take on the duties of a king. He's just a, a hero out in the wilds is the way I think of him. Yeah. He's doing his own thing. So stanza 18, Adhrimir is the cook of the gods and the Einarhar. He lets the pork from Sehrimnir cook in his cauldron, Eidhrimnir. So his cauldron's name is Eidhrimnir. One thing I wanted to note here, I don't believe we ever actually went into Einarhar. So the Einarhar are the slain that Odin takes to his hall in Valhalla. Adhrimnir cooks for the gods, the Aesir, and the dead humans that are in Valhalla. 
which I think is funny that Valhalla has a cook, right? Yeah. And well, you got to feed all these guys, right? So that's kind of like Thor eating is very important. You want to keep them fed. You don't want them getting hungry. <laughs> and I think that they also have a, a pig that they kill every day and then it comes back to life. So they can probably don't want to break the bones of it, but you can take all the meat off it and it'll, it'll be back. Yeah, definitely. They're already dead. Moving on to stanza 19, Odin feeds his wolves, Gary and Freki, but he himself only consumes wine, which I think is very interesting. He apparently only consumes wine, no food, nothing else. And so I'm wondering if like in this case, wine is supposed to be mead and that's where he gets his wisdom. Like that's where he gets his sustenance to be Odin, if that makes sense. Mead is, uh, is just honey wine, right? So yeah. That's, actually, that's probably true. I didn't make that connection. Meat is honey wine. So yeah. anyway, Sansa 20. This is one of my favorites. And this is in quotes from, again, Jackson Crawford's translation. Hugin, whose thoughts, and Moonin, whose memory, my ravens fly every day the whole world over. Each day, I fear that Hugin might not return, but I fear more for Moonin. So I, I find this very interesting, this Hugin, who's like, who could be looked at as a human's thought and Munin as a human's memory. It's a very cool stanza because Odin is worrying more so about Munin as opposed to Hugin. Oh yeah. No, and I like, and I know that that, uh, the images, the two ravens, right, means a lot to you, which is why it's yeah great as the name of our uh, podcast, right? And I was reading more on this because somewhere I had seen this idea. So commonly it's translated, right, as thought and memory, Hugin and Munin. Right. But they say that the word munin is much more complicated, right? It's like the easiest way to translate it into English is memory. But they say that it's, you know, when you see the word munin used in other places throughout Old Norse, it's maybe memory, it's maybe thought, it's maybe desire, it's maybe emotion. It's something that's much more complicated, right? Mm. So we had an episode a ways back where I was talking about kind of like the three parts of the soul kind of separating out. What was it like the spirit? from your thought, from something that's kind of like your id, from the Freudian sense, right? So the idea, and I'm trying to figure out, right? Yeah, because these are all very abstract ideas, right? Thinking back, the the old Norse, right? You know, they didn't have a lot of, uh, didn't have science, right? So how do they try to make sense of these very technical ideas, right? One way I like to think of it is that that, that Hugin, that thought is very much like cognition, right? It's when you're actively thinking in your head right now, right? So that's kind of the ego as well. I like to think of Munin as being kind of like soul, right? As you think about your memory, depending on, you know, your spiritual beliefs, if you think of, you know, where do dead people reside, right? They, they die. And then where is their soul? We know they're in your memory, right? Wherever else they are, you know, existentially, right? They're in your memory, right? So that's kind of like the soul. And that's why it yeah. really stands out to me when Odin fears for the loss of Munin, because that's an idea that comes up all the time in shamanism, the fear of soul loss. That's, that's actually what shamans do is they help people with soul loss. If they lose their soul, you need to get your soul back and mm. get a shaman to help you with that. It's for, for me, is some support for this idea that, yeah, Munin is, is memory, but it's something much more than that. It's kind of like soul, right? Um, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. In Havamal, Odin clearly tells us that he's afraid, or he's he understands that his consciousness is going to end. Yeah. Right? And it's like a very deep portion of the poem, but like this is where like his idea of worrying about his soul leaving him yeah. is more important than him just like worrying about his mind, if that makes sense. No, I think it's that idea, like you were just saying, right? He's, he's not so worried about his consciousness ending and dying, but he's very worried about his soul being not where it's supposed to be. Yeah. Just kind of fits with, goes back to this, yeah, existential dread, right? It's one, one thing to die. It's another thing to to not have a soul or your soul to be in the wrong place. So, Odin uh, is the god of the existential dread. 
yeah, right. That's a, that's the thing. Yeah, but, and then yeah, that Odin has a he has a hard time figuring that out. It seems like he figures it out towards the end, right? But yeah, it took him a long time. Yeah. Oh, and that and then maybe one of the ways they translated it, kind of like your desire or your emotion. It's kind of this idea that you're like your thinking mind versus your feeling mind, right? That you know, for writing poetry and understanding runes, you very much need that intuitive uh, feeling mind. So that's another way to try to try to make sense of ideas. I think there are even ideas we don't really have a clear understanding of today, right? Like we know what cognition is pretty well, but do we know what soul is, right? That's that's the whole uh, that's the yeah. question. So Sean, what do you think? Should we cover uh, the rest of the stanzas in the next episode? Yeah, I think it's. I think this is good. The post, uh, the post introduction was pretty long, and then we got through the first twenty stanzas of world building. The uh, next thirty to forty, thirty-five to forty-five stanzas are next week, and then uh, we'll be able to cover the rest of the poem. And then we'll try to yeah, kind of wrap it all together and give an interpretation of what is it, what does it all mean together. So it sounds good. Awesome. Thank you, David. Have a good night. Thank you, uh, everybody listening. Good night.